Father, you are our delight and our reward of greater worth and value than anything. Anything we have, anything we see. Please remind us of this now as we come to your word. Lord, we pray for clarity as we consider the words of Jesus. We need your Spirit's help to accomplish this, to see as we should. So please now work in our hearts. Help us to see ourselves rightly and help us to see you in Christ rightly. We pray this in his name. Amen. You be seated. On July 3rd, 2000, a 42-year-old forklift operator in Corbin, Kentucky, named Matt Medcalf, was working a 12-hour night shift. On his last break, he half-heartedly checked the Sunday paper for the winning lottery numbers. Of course, he did not expect to be a winner. But hey, you never know. Mac's ticket, it turned out, was the winner of the 65 million Powerball jackpot. And it changed his life forever. And the first thing he did was quit his job. I clocked out right then, and I've not been back, he said. In fact, the first impulse was to quit everything. After a life characterized by problem drinking, dysfunctional family life, and poorly paid work, he said, I'm moving to Australia. I'm going to totally get away. I'm going to buy several houses there, including one on the beach, he told lottery officials. Well, Medcalf never worked again, but he didn't move to Australia either. Instead, he bought a 43-acre estate in southern Kentucky for more than $1 million, and there he spent his days pursuing pastimes like collecting expensive cars and exotic pets, including tarantulas and snakes. Trouble started for Medcalf as soon as he won the lottery. Seeing him on television, a social worker recognized him as delinquent for, for, as delinquent for child support from a past marriage, resulting in a settlement that cost half a million dollars. A former girlfriend tricked him out of another half a million while he was drunk. He fell deeper and deeper into alcoholism and became paranoid that those around him wanted to kill him. Racked with cirrhosis of the liver and hepatitis, he died at the age of 45, only about three years after his lottery dream had finally come true. And his tombstone reads, his tombstone reads Loving father and brother, finally at rest. Well, reflecting on this, social scientist and Harvard Business School professor Arthur Brooks asks So, what's the moral of the story? Is money destined to make us miserable? Of course not. Mac Medcalf's sad case is surely an aberration. I mean, if you hit the lottery, it would be different. Oh, you would give a lot to charity and do all kinds of good things. Similarly, 
If your career suddenly took off in a fantastic way and you earned a great deal of money, oh, you would get much happier. And what is true for the parts must also be true for the whole. When America experiences high rates of economic growth, it gets much happier. America is not a nation of Mac Medcalfs, and money is a smart first strategy for attaining a higher gross national happiness. Right? I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 12. The Gospel of Luke chapter 12. We notice in verse 1 that there were several thousands of people gathering to hear Jesus teach. In fact, Luke notes that they were even trampling each other. Before turning to the crowd, Jesus instructs his 12 disciples regarding several significant matters of Christian discipleship. They're spelled out there in the first 12 verses. And then we'll pick up here in verse 13. Note verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, we don't know if this guy who approached Jesus, and it, what, it appears to kind of be a, a rude and disruptive way. But we don't know if this guy had heard what he was talking about with his disciples. If he had, it sure doesn't seem like he was listening or at least tracking with these all-important eternal matters. Regardless of what he heard, his mind was focused on one thing. It was focused on getting what he thought was his share of the inheritance. So he wanted Jesus to fix his problem and tell his brother to give him his fair share. Now maybe if he had asked Jesus to make a judgment as to what was right, as what people regularly did with rabbis, they would go to the rabbi and ask for a judgment. Maybe if this guy did that, Jesus would have responded differently. But, but Jesus clearly doesn't seem here to appreciate the man's approach. And he has no interest in obeying his command. Note verse 14. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? It's as if he's saying, buddy, I don't really care about your inheritance. I care about your attitude. This man's demand revealed his heart. You see, his problem wasn't his brother's greed, but his own greed. This was not an issue of justice, but an issue of covetousness. So Jesus issues a warning to, I think, we don't know for sure if his brother was with him, but, but I think we can assume that both of them were there. And, and Jesus issues a warning to them, and likely even the crowd, others there who would have heard. He does this in verse 15. He said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance 
of his possessions. You see, both brothers were guilty of covetousness. The one for not giving his fair share and the other for demanding that he get what was his. Jesus refused to serve as a judge, but he happily takes on the role of a teacher, proceeding to make his point masterfully through a parable, as he so often did. Let's read it, starting in verse 16. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I once heard Sinclair Ferguson call this man Benjamin Barnhouse. It's a pretty fitting name. And I think it'll be helpful for us to call him that as well. He was already rich, and then he had a bumper crop. So so this is a story of the rich getting richer. And it doesn't appear that he acquired this fortune through stealing, cheating, or some form of dishonesty. He didn't even strike it rich at Mystic Lake Casino. He was running a legitimate, totally above-board farming business and had become very successful. And who could blame him for building bigger barns? That was a wise business move, a necessary plan for expansion and capital investment. Mr. Barnhouse was living the American dream before it was even a thing. But there was a problem. It wasn't that he was successful or super rich. The problem was that he was banking in the wrong place. He was trusting in the wrong kind of investment. He didn't realize that while he was drawing up blueprints for his new barns, God was writing his obituary, listing him not with the B's as Mr. Barnhouse, but with the F's as Mr. Fool. Ferguson imagines it saying something like this. Tragically yesterday, having just completed the blueprint for his new barn system, and at the end of the most prosperous year for Barnhouse Incorporated, Benjamin Barnhouse passed from unknown causes into eternity spiritually bankrupt to stand before God as a spiritual pauper. 
why was he a fool? Why did God call him a fool? It's really important to consider that. Successful, wealthy businessman, why would God call him a fool? Well, it wasn't because he was intellectually stupid or made dumb decisions. He was a fool because he was living as if there was no God. Mr. Barnhouse failed to see himself, his wealth, and his life the way God does. So, so all of these three wrong views overlap. They're not these neatly separate categories. But, but we'll look at each one, thinking about why it was that God saw him to be a fool. The first is he had a wrong view of himself. What was this guy's self-perception? The story indicates, Jesus makes it clear, that he saw himself as the reason he became rich. But he was not the rainmaker. He was not the sunshiner. He plowed his field, he planted the seed, but he was totally incapable of making the crop grow. Jesus is careful to note here that the man's ground produced a great harvest. Good ground produces good crops. Bad ground produces bad crops. And beyond this, God gives the bountiful crops as he promised in the Mosaic Covenant. But Mr. Barnhouse saw himself as the owner of all that he had. In verses 17 through 19, he references himself 12 times. Did you catch how many times he references God? Yeah, I heard it. Zero. There's not one there. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods. And most frightening of all, my soul. He was perfectly in sync with the proud and defiant words of William Henley's Invictus. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Mr. Barnhouse failed to recognize that God owns everything. He gives us all that we have and he has the right to take us out of this world. He also had a wrong view of his wealth. First, he thought his wealth was his, but it wasn't. His wealth wasn't his, and one of the main ways we know that is he couldn't take it with him. J.D. Rockefeller owned 90% of the oil and gas industry in the U.S. He's been widely considered to have been the wealthiest American in history. When he died in 1937, someone asked his accountant, how much did he leave behind? And the accountant wisely replied, he left it all behind. Jesus asked Mr. Barnhouse in verse 20, who's going to get all your stuff? 
that we can and should spell out in a will or a trust where we want all our possessions to go. But even if they all go to our children or a church or a solid institution, any number of good causes, we can't ultimately be certain how whatever we left behind will be used. And that's the point Jesus is making here. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon writes of the futility of having to leave everything he has earned to someone who hasn't even worked for it. And he says, who knows whether they will use it well or not. Second, he did not understand why God gave him wealth. He clearly thought the purpose was to store up and save rather than to put it into use. And whatever he planned to use, apparently, was only going to be spent on his own comfort, his own pleasure, his own ease. Mr. Barnhouse did not see his wealth as an occasion for praising God or as an opportunity to minister to others by giving to those in need. It never occurred to him that his, when his barns couldn't hold any more, he could give some of it away. Wealth is given by God to sustain us. It's even given to us for our enjoyment. But it's also given so we can invest in people and invest in eternity. He had a wrong view of his, himself, a wrong view of his wealth. And then we see here as well, he had a wrong view of his life. See, Mr. Barnhouse was short-sighted. He did not see beyond this life. In all of his decisions, and all of his planning, he left out one critical factor. He didn't think about eternity. He lived his life in light of the future that he imagined. But it did not include the kingdom of God, death, or the judgment to come. Which is why he figured that since he was set for life, he could retire early. He seemed quite content to hang up his work jeans and just take it easy for the rest of his life. I've worked hard my whole life. I'm tired. It's time to finally stop and live at ease. You know what? I think I've earned it. Does that sound at all familiar? Virtually everywhere we turn, our culture is pressing us to see life in this very same way. Relax, eat, drink, enjoy yourself, travel the world. You deserve it to take it easy in retirement. And the sooner you can start, the better. Now, there's nothing wrong with quitting your day job. There's nothing wrong with slowing down. In fact, our bodies tend to dictate that for us, don't they? The problem is less in what you retire from, but more in what you retire to. 
the moral failure of this man is that he was planning to retire to a life of self-centered ease. Kent Hughes notes that this is the only place in the Bible where retirement is spoken of and it's condemned. A retirement that lives for self is unbiblical and immoral. Uh, Personally, I am super thankful for those in our church who, while they've retired from working a job, they have not retired to a life of self-centered ease as they continue in the best way that they can labor and work for God's kingdom. It is so valuable and encouraging to see the many ways in which you are putting the cause of Christ above your own security, comfort, pleasure, and ease. We'll never see that kind of example in our culture. I need to see what that looks like. Like I want my children to see examples of what that looks like. And I'm thankful that, that we can see that here in our church. And praise God for those of you who are working, continuing to labor in God's kingdom, even as retired folks. So whether you're 10 years old and a long ways off from any sort of career, whether you're in college just starting to figure out what you want to do for work, whether you're plugging away at age 60, and starting to calculate how much longer you have to work. We should be thinking now about how we will spend our golden years. And may we resolve that they will not look anything like Mr. Barnhouse's retirement plan. And I think one of the best ways to keep that from happening is to resist a self-focus now. We must prioritize living for God's kingdom now, wherever we may be in life. And then, if retirement comes, we simply continue living out our years with that very same focus, even though our labor may look somewhat different based on our abilities and our opportunities. Mr. Barnhouse presumed that he would both possess his wealth in the future and that he would be alive in the future to enjoy his possessions. But both presumptions were false. His fatal flaw in how he viewed his life is that he believed it was all about his possessions. He defined life in terms of selfish ease and pleasure. He thought that life was obtained by putting oneself and one's wealth first. But Jesus makes it clear in verse 15 that life does not consist in what we possess. Material material wealth cannot produce real life. Possessions can provide some level of enjoyment, but they don't make us happier. 
And this has actually been demonstrated in numerous studies. People from all around the world proving possessions, wealth, doesn't make people any happier. Our stuff can't make us holier. And when you have no, and, and what you have has nothing to do with the quality of your relationships with other people. Riches can do nothing to put peace in your heart. And they cannot make you eternally satisfied. We all can tend to think that the more possessions we can attain, the more life we will have. But that's a lie. It is a deceptive illusion. Mr. Barnhouse failed to see life the way God does. In trying to save his life, he lost it. Gaining the whole world was of no profit to him because he lost his soul. He was a fool because he did not see himself, his wealth, and his life the way God did. And, and I think all of his foolishness can be summed up in how Jesus describes him at the very end of this parable. In verse 21, he was not rich towards God. As rich as he was, he was not rich towards God. What does that mean? What does it mean to be rich towards God? It's really important we know. To be rich towards God means to be in rich relationship with Him. So, I think a basic, simple, fundamental way to understand it. To be rich towards God means to be rich in relationship with Him. And the need for this, if we, th we should think about why this is important, why this is not just a good idea, but why this is actually essential. Why is this necessary? It's necessary because every material possession is a fleeting pleasure, while our relationship with God is eternal. Also, nothing in this world has any value or worth apart from God. He is more valuable than anything in this world. And everything in this world derives its value from God. Therefore, to pursue and love the things God has made while ignoring Him is idolatry. So when God ushered Mr. Barnhouse out of this world... He wasn't being irrational, unfair, or unloving because Mr. Barnhouse was not rich towards God. So let's think about this a little bit more. What does it mean to be rich towards God? It means to be rich in relationship with him, but let's dig deeper. What does that look like? This essential investment begins by depositing your life with Jesus Christ which means entrusting your eternal destiny to him. All of the good works that you try to do for God will not begin to pay the debt of your sin 
when you stand before him. Jesus Christ paid that debt. On the cross, he cried out, it is finished, which means paid in full. The wages of sin or the payment that sin demands is death. And Jesus paid that price on the cross. So when you stand before God and he asks, what is in your account in the bank of heaven? What would you say? Well, the only answer that will suffice is the blood of your son Jesus Christ has paid for all my sins. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, though Jesus was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, we could say by his death on the cross, you might become rich. God promises full forgiveness and full access to the eternal riches of a relationship with God if you will but repent of your sin and place your trust in Christ's death and resurrection. So so if you're here this morning and you are not rich towards God, you've not turned from your sin and embraced Christ through faith, I urge you to do so today. Since we were all made for fellowship with God, nothing less than that will bring us ultimate joy and ultimate satisfaction. So being rich towards God begins with being reconciled to him, but it doesn't end there. As we live in response to the riches we've been given, we must spend them in line with his kingdom purposes. So so we're rich towards God. We've been given eternal riches in him. We then must spend those riches. We must live our life out then in a way that lines up with his kingdom purposes. And, And I think a way to sum that up is we'll seek first the kingdom of God. So so living out our riches in God is to seek his kingdom first. Well, this means many things. I'll share some here. This is certainly not exhaustive. But it means that we'll actively feed our soul on God's word in a purposeful way to know him and to love him, both through private reading and the teaching and preaching of the local church. It means that we'll commune with him regularly in prayer. I mean, think about it. To talk to the Lord of the universe? That is real wealth. It means we'll deposit wealth in heaven by investing our time, our talents, our resources and money in the cause of Christ. So we'll prioritize opportunities to serve not doing it only when it's convenient and doesn't conflict with our busy schedule, but whenever we're able, putting that over and above our own interests and our own desires. 
will give money off the top of what God's given to us rather than whatever just happens to be left over after we've spent and saved everything that we want. Being rich towards God means that you will invest your life in the spiritual progress of others. You'll be a disciple maker. As those who've received an eternal inheritance, all of us have more than the amount of wealth necessary to share our life with someone else. Leading them closer to Christ in some way whether it be through the woman-to-woman ministry or a men's small group or some other intentional connection that focuses on God's Word, spiritual conversation, and prayer. Or even just the regular pattern of brief, unplanned, ordinary conversations in the lobby, in the pavilion, at a church retreat, or anywhere else where there may be those we've covenanted to care about. You see, this work isn't just for pastors. All of us should be investing in the lives of others, seeking to draw them closer to Christ. Jesus wants us to experience and enjoy infinite wealth. And that can only be found in intimacy with him, which is lived out through the investment in Christ's church and the lives of other people. Now, as, as we just press in a little bit more, seeking to apply this parable to our lives, I think it's good to just be honest, and acknowledge the, the difficulty and challenge of what Jesus is teaching here. One commentator noted that the message of this parable is as antithetical to our thinking as any Jesus told. I know of no more difficult topic to apply personally or to the lives of modern Western Christians. I think he's right. This parable strikes a tender nerve, especially when we admit to ourselves, and we must, we must admit to ourselves how much deep down in our heart of hearts we really want to be like the rich fool as we ride around on the consumer carousel of this life, reaching and grasping for bigger and better homes, finer dining, a newer car, a better phone, more and exciting, more and exotic vacations, nicer clothes, and all sorts of other things that we desire and we think will somehow make our lives better. No matter your age or your economic status, there is something bigger and better that you want and that you hope will come sometime in the future.
there's something in all of us that identifies with Tavi in Fiddler on the Roof, who sings, If I were a rich man, and when told that money is the world's curse, says, May the Lord smite me with it, and may I never recover. Greed resides in every human heart. And it doesn't just evaporate or go away when we become a Christian. And we should recognize that covetousness covers more than just money. You see, Jesus here is addressing the attitude of desiring more and more of anything that we want. Not just money. Things like power, influence, prestige, and recognition, which are all tightly tied to possessions. Now, I think it's possible, at least, to think, you know, I'm nowhere near where Mr. Barnhouse was. I'm not very rich. So this parable isn't really for me. This is for the guys with bazillions of dollars. Well, before addressing that thought, we should acknowledge that most all of us are far wealthier than we may realize. I mean, we stuff our stuff into garages and sheds, into the attic, crawl spaces under the stairs, into drawers and rooms and closets in rooms. We need so much storage in this country because we have a lot of possessions. But back to the objection, the thought someone may have, if you really do think you're too poor for this parable to apply, consider this. Jesus addresses a man who thinks he doesn't have enough. Give me my inheritance. Jesus addresses a man who doesn't think he has enough and then tells a parable about a man who has too much. Why would he do that? Jesus did that because although outwardly they are opposites, inwardly they are twins. Both the rich and the poor think, if I have more possessions, then my life will be better. In his book, Shiny Objects, Why We Spend Money We Don't Have in Search of happiness we can't buy. James Roberts cites several studies which prove that Americans' escalating consumption brings us no closer to the so-called good life. It only speeds up the treadmill. As Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves silver is never satisfied with silver. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. When asked how much money is enough money, the wealthy Rockefeller answered, just a little bit more. So the issue then is not how much we have. The issue Jesus is going after here is our covetous hearts that naturally desire more 
and more and more and more. Which is why as God's people, we must take seriously the double warning Jesus gives in verse 15. It's a double warning. Look at it there in verse 15. Watch out and guard yourselves from all types of covetousness. We need constant vigilance to keep this enemy at bay. And if we're not always on guard, greed will creep in and get a stranglehold on our life. So so as we seek to apply this warning, just consider these few questions. These questions are designed to test our hearts for covetousness. Test our hearts for greed. Perhaps these are questions you can discuss today over lunch. Right? Here they are. And there's no doubt more, but here's some worth thinking about. Do I think about, do I think more about material things than about God? Where does your mind constantly going? Do I ever compromise godly character in the pursuit of material gain? If we're willing to be unethical or sin in some way in order to get more, oh, that's revealing a covetous and greedy heart. Do I find more joy in material things than in knowing God? Do I get more excited about my stuff than about what God is doing in the world or what God is doing in the lives of other people? I mean, hearing a testimony of a new member ought to excite us more than getting a new car or remodeling our kitchen or whatever it may be. What would I do if I suddenly came into a fortune? Not that this would ever happen, right? I mean, who, who, who gets fortunes and how many rich uncles are out there that, of course, none of us ever have them. But who doesn't ever dream about what would you do, what you would do with the money if it did happen, right? And we all do. Think about it. What would you do if the Lord, like Mr. Barnhouse, unloaded a massive amount of wealth on you? And then last, how do I respond when I lose material things? Man, this really reveals a lot. When you lose something, a possession, a value, what does that do to you? If you are shattered and destroyed and your life is just a wreck, it may reveal a heart of greed and covetousness holding on too tightly to something. And in our day, today, how do we respond when we have to pay more for necessities? Like gas, right? These are all questions that are worth considering. First Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, by craving it, by Going after it, some have wandered away from the faith 
and have pierced themselves through with many pains. So the stakes couldn't be any higher. Throughout our entire lives, we must watch out and be on guard for all types of covetousness. Benjamin Barnhouse had life by the tail. He had a great amount of material wealth with no guilt and no one to spend it on but himself. And in a moment of time, it all vanished. Jesus says, you don't want to be that man. If your life is focused on possessions and you think it is all about the things of this world that you desire, you are a moral fool. It is utter folly to gather earthly wealth at the expense of relational wealth with God. In his book, The Treasure Principle, Randy Alcorn tells the story of two young men who died premature deaths in the land of Egypt. At the end of a dusty, trash-littered road in Cairo is an unkept cemetery. One tombstone in that graveyard bears the name William Borden, 1887 to 1913. Borden was a Yale graduate and an heir of great wealth. But he chose to invest his wealth in missions, and he rejected a life of ease in order to bring the gospel to Muslims. After only four months of zealous ministry in Egypt, Borden con contracted spinal meningitis, and he died at the young age of 25. The inscription on his tombstone describes his love for the kingdom of God and the Muslim people. And the final line reads, Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Near the American Missionary Graveyard, is the Egyptian National Museum where artifacts from King Tut's tomb are on display. He was only 17 when he died and he was buried with solid gold chariots and thousands of gold artifacts. His gold coffin was inside gold tombs which were inside gold tombs which were inside gold tombs. The burial site was filled with tons of gold, all to be enjoyed in the afterlife. You know, no one touched that tomb for over 3,000 years. It was discovered about nine years after Borden died. And everything everything was still there.
Two tombs. And Alcorn asked the all-important question, which of these two men was rich towards God? Someday, in the hours, days, weeks, months, or years ahead, God is going to remove all of us from this life. And we will leave every single possession that we have behind. The only wealth we will take is the wealth of our relationship with him. May we never pursue material wealth at the expense of our relational wealth towards God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this parable from Jesus. Lord, and, and we, we thank you for the riches you've given us in Christ. Father, it is your grace that allows us to be rich towards you. We would never choose that on our own. We would be perfectly content with all the riches of this world. Thank you, Father, for making us rich through grace in Christ. And Lord, for all those who are here who do not know yet of the riches you offer in Christ, who are grasping for satisfaction and fulfillment from things in this world, Father, please open their eyes. Help them to see how empty and unsatisfying everything is apart from you. We pray, Lord, you would grant repentance and faith. Father, for all of us who know of the wealth in Christ, who are reconciled to you, oh, Father, may we take this warning seriously. May we guard ourselves. May we watch out for the covetousness and greed in our heart. Oh, Father, keep us from the idolatry of pursuing things and placing them over you. May we be rich towards you in all our days as we live out our lives seeking first the kingdom of God. It's in Christ's name we ask all this. Amen.